Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. In 1987, Congress passed a resolution designating March as Women's History Month. It was intended as a month to celebrate the specific achievements of women and how women have shaped the course of American history. We are so excited to be contributing to the tradition of recognizing and celebrating women. And not only is March Women's History Month, here in the U.S., March is also Irish American Heritage Month. There have been so many incredible Irish American women who've contributed to our country and to our world. Kate Chopin, Sandra Day O'Connor, and Mother Jones are just a few of those. So I thought, what better way to ring in this new month than by learning about Ireland's patroness saint and listening to the experiences of Irish women? And that's exactly what we're going to do today. Later in the episode, we'll hear from Maureen Hernan, who is a teacher, a nutritionist, and a writer, and she'll tell us about her life growing up in rural Ireland. But first, I'd like to introduce Ariana Balte, who contributed a fascinating segment about sacred female power, invisible labor, and the patroness saint of Ireland, Bridget of Kildare. Ariana Balte is a teacher, a mom, and a recent graduate of the Stanford Masters of Liberal Arts program. She loves painting, traveling, and swimming with the PCC Masters team. Hello, my name is Ariana Balte, and I'm contributing a piece called How St. Bridget Defied Patriarchy. In the early 60s, my father called my mother a one-handed woman when she did two things at once. It was an era when more women were returning to work, but society still expected them to run the household. My father believed that men cleverly chose to work with both hands. He missed that when women did not, it was likely because they had their hands full with a baby on one knee and a tool in the other. My dad was a good man, but he claimed that I never wore diapers. Thought He thought it was funny, and he didn't mind revealing that he had never changed one. My mother magically presented me clean each time he saw me. Sometimes women's work is as miraculous as St. Bridget's superhuman miracles. St. Bridget, a 5th century Irish saint who performed feats of healing and protection, is still adored for her compelling strength and leadership at the inception of Catholicism in Ireland. Irish women found much-needed inspiration in her stories and have kept them alive to this day, despite constant patriarchal attacks. St. Bridget offers safety and preservation of life for all the Irish, but she specifically protects women and magically prevails over birth, the hearth, and female health. She vindicates women's experiences as central and important and models the role of a powerful female leader. In writing this small contribution to Amy's amazing podcast series, I thought a lot about women who are constantly juggling a long list of responsibilities. I personally was holding down a full-time teaching job while dealing with the ongoing needs of grown kids. It wasn't lost on me that despite our family's shared meal responsibilities, I was the one who felt additionally obliged to make the homemade dessert before visiting friends. We still need to work miracles. Fortunately, St. Bridget and her sacred feminine traditions have empowered me more than I would have dreamed. She points to women's power as a birthright. 
She's a role model whose might overpowers patriarchy, and her traditions go on to rise and speak for women today. More about St. Bridget's powerful reign. When I began writing my thesis on St. Bridget at Stanford last year, I was amazed at the extent to which the saint's life and stories connected the holy to the feminine. The word feminine carries a lot of baggage, connotes softness, hesitancy, and weakness. But St. Bridget demonstrates another kind of feminine, one that is commanding, gutsy, and cunning. The saint is remarkable because she exists and even thrives within the male-dominated church. She is a beloved spiritual teacher and Ireland's only female patron saint. She does all this without losing her association with the original ancient goddess. She's the omni-feminine, so powerful that she orchestrates the beginnings and ends of life and provides constant protection from evil. If we approach St. Bridget with an understanding that she represents emerging of the Christian saint with Ireland's pagan Celtic goddess, it is easy to understand why she is larger than life. Her strength comes from a time in Ireland when people venerated female creational power. Today, the Saints Festival Day is celebrated on the same day as pagan spring celebration in bulk, but her traditions reveal her influence over all aspects of the life cycle. The St. Bridget we know today evolved under patriarchy and emerged as a Catholic saint. The Irish loved her pagan roots enough to preserve them within Christianity. Her knowledge of this Celtic past complemented her essential work to help Christianity blossom in Ireland. St. Bridget was a real woman whose power in the church flies in the face of patriarchal tradition. She wielded the power of a bishop as she helped form Irish Catholicism and direct the nascent Catholic Church. Her pagan background gave her the influence she needed to establish the fundamentals of monastic practice. Her lives, the medieval stories of her life written for religious imitation, do sometimes describe her in meek and humble terms. Quote, she was abstinent. She was innocent. She was prayerful. She was patient, it says in the Book of Lismore, The Life of Bridget. But clearly, this is not the whole story about Bridget. It was such a relief to read in her Christian stories about how St. Bridget models exceptional virtue, but also exceptional strength in a world where many female Christian figures lack her authority. She is virginal, but she is also commanding. According to legend, she plucks out her own eye to escape a marriage arranged by her father. St. Bridget fights with superhuman strength for the rights of those she wants to help, and she punishes those who get in her way. When a merchant lies to her about his cargo, she turns his salt into rock. When a person washes a leper and cures him, but the cured man won't return the favor, St. Bridget revokes his cure and brings back his leprosy. And a king who rejects her choice of official appointment is killed when she makes him fall from his chariot. Compared to divine females in the Bible, St. Bridget is resilient and retains more clout. 
In Exodus and Two Kings, where women venerate the goddess Asherah, an Assyrian consort of El, and the wife of the Hebrew god, Yahweh, the patriarchal kings lash out and violently destroy the goddess's altars. By contrast, St. Brigid resists this kind of patriarchal oppression and keeps her female sacred power within Christianity. As I looked deeper, it dawned on me that St. Brigid keeps her power under patriarchy because of the strength she drew from her pagan leadership and education. Before she converted to Christianity at about 18 years of age, and before she founded her double monastery at Kildare, she was trained as a Druid, the leading class of the indigenous Irish Celts. As a Druid with a high-ranking Druidic father, St. Brigid would have received 12 years of education to prepare for her Druidic leadership and would have learned to wield power in a uniquely feminine way. Druids functioned as the Celtic priests and served as teachers, judges, lawyers, prophets, and political advisors to local kings. Women in Druidic society could rise to high-ranking positions and hold leadership roles equal or greater to men. As a young priestess, St. Brigid led rituals to celebrate her namesake, the Celtic goddess Brigid, at the pagan shrine of Childara, or the Church of the Oak. After her conversion to Christianity, St. Brigid and her nuns tended the sacred fire at the same site which became her Kildare Monastery. St. Brigid used her education and leadership to inspire both men and women to join the 5th century Irish church, where her qualifications would have allowed her to resist patriarchal domination and rise to the highest rank within the Irish Catholic Church. As a child, I can remember searching for female religious figures to emulate. My situation was a tad unusual since my mother's efforts to get me to Methodist Sunday school were counterbalanced an hour later by a thorough deprogramming from my Zionist, atheistic father. Needless to say, I did not adopt a fixed set of religious beliefs. Searching throughout my young adult life for something that resonated with my fledgling feminism, I knew I wasn't alone in wondering why the most prominent figures in the church were male, while the females were virginally pure, humble, and served men's interests. The absence of powerful female figures in the religious hierarchy in scripture puzzled me. I kept searching for a belief system that looked and thought like me, despite the largely patriarchal guise of religion today. While I can't say St. Bridget has made me religious, she certainly has altered my perspective on Christianity. In my research on St. Bridget, I directly connect the saint's traditions to a female-dominated sacred past stretching back to the Paleolithic. I was excited to discover that tens of thousands of years ago, cave people buried remains at the mouth of the cave and never deep within. This physical cave entrance, I realized, may have represented the point of transition that represents the birthplace where death changes to life. I knew that this was the same way figures of St. Bridget near Holy Wells or over the door of a modern-day church mark a magical entrance to the other world where the saint's power can be accessed. Like a cave, the interior of a church is understood as a womb, a sacred, mysterious place where life originates and death returns. 
I have amended my view on today's church despite its continued male dominance because St. Bridget's traditions have roots in the earliest beliefs in the world which venerated the feminine. The saints' traditions and stories vindicate women's claim to a central position within modern-day religion. Like the child in school who needs to recognize themselves in characters they read about, I needed to see women of power reflected in scripture. Finding the sacred feminine through St. Bridget has given me this sense of belonging. I made another linguistic discovery that also spurred me on in my hunt for St. Bridget's connection to an ancient female-centered religious past. Although patriarchal leaders tried to erase sacred feminine veneration from history, words and metaphors within the Irish language had preserved the idea of female divine control. Language surrounding St. Bridget's traditions records her power surrounding birth. She travels the Irish countryside each spring, blessing crosses and reeds on her festival day, which takes place on Imbolc, meaning great belly or womb. Birth terms such as St. Bridget's bowl for the womb also offer evidence that St. Bridget controls the life cycle and retains the power of creation from the original mother goddess. This made sense since St. Bridget is also the patron saint of childbirth, and it was traditional for the midwife to stand in a doorway and call for St. Bridget by name at the moment of birth. The saint's protection at doorways represents her control over liminal borders where the saint can access the magic of the other world. Legend also says St. Bridget cried the first keen, a blood-curdling mourning wail fit to wake the dead. St. Bridget's Spring blessings are powerful and not just about fertility. They preserve life for another year and can save someone from drowning or fire. As I thought more deeply about St. Bridget's Festival Day blessings, I was astonished to realize that she participated in one of the oldest female-centered sacred rituals, the sacred marriage. In this ritual, a priestess on earth models behavior for the goddess she venerates in heaven. This Christian icon's annual journey around Ireland exemplified the pursuit of an ancient belief. For thousands of years, people believed that they needed to act in order to enable the gods to make crops grow and make the sun and seasons turn. In sacred marriage, a priestess chooses her king and mates with him to energize the life cycle. Their union mirrors the marriage of the goddess and god above and works to prompt a continuation of the life cycle, including the movement of the sun and the growth of crops. St. Bridget also represented her namesake, the goddess Bridget, in the same way. When she venerated goddess Bridget and kept the sacred flame burning, it caused the goddess to preserve life by moving the sun, thus keeping the crops growing. When St. Bridget does her festival rounds on the eve of her festival day to visit and bless each home, she models the movement of the sun on the first day of spring when life resurfaces. In this way, she participates in the ancient sacred marriage ritual practiced in ancient societies like Egypt, Assyria, and Sumer. Even in her Catholic form, her seasonal rounds link St. Bridget 
to the ancient rituals of the mother goddess that ensures the continuation of the cycle of birth, death, and regeneration. My research revealed a direct connection between St. Bridget and Paleolithic religious expression as well. One of the oldest examples of figurative art, now called the Venus of Whole Fells, is a 40,000-year-old female figure with exaggerated breasts and vulva. While many researchers have interpreted the statue's voluptuous characteristics as symbols of fertility, sexuality, beauty, and motherhood, their restricted view narrow our understanding of the symbol's creational metaphor. If we remove this patriarchal filter, we understand that these figures represent the ultimate power of the female over all life, to create and also take it back again. We can trace a line from the whole Fells Venus to another 8,000-year-old naked figurine found at Katalhuyuk, a site in modern Turkey. This lion lady sits on a chair with lions for armrests resembling King Solomon's throne. She was not a pawn in a simple fertility ritual, nor a sex symbol, as some archaeologists have claimed. Rather, Asherah and other female goddesses in sculptural representations frequently stand on lions to demonstrate female creational power. We can make a direct connection from the Judeo-Christian tradition of St. Bridget back to the great female creator, goddess of the Paleolithic. Thousands of years ago, as agriculture took hold, patriarchal Indo-Europeans began to invade nature-based societies, causing a splintering of the all-powerful Great Mother Goddess. Remaining goddesses became a pantheon of lesser female divinities under these masculinizing forces. We might refer to these new goddesses as the goddess of war or the goddess of weaving. These namesake attributes, however, originally all belonged to the same ancient feminine divinity. Another reason I personally have loved learning about St. Bridget is that she is a seamstress like me. I sewed my own wedding dress, enjoy costuming shows, and have taught embroidery classes. But somehow, during visits home to my husband's family of scientists, I always felt that this woman's work was second rate, and certainly not something to be proud of in conversation. Finding out the ancient significance of weaving through St. Bridget made my heart soar and feel larger than life, as if I belonged to a long-standing club of wise women. Although weaving is not highly esteemed in today's world, St. Bridget's stories remind us that needlework is one of the oldest symbols for female creational power. Legend says that mighty St. Bridget wove the first cloth in Ireland, even as patriarchal pressures reduced the sacred value once placed on women's arts, language preserved a linkage between life and weaving so fundamental that the words for spin and lifespan have the same origin. The verb to spin originally meant to draw out or stretch long. St. Bridget's first miracle in lives also involves stretching fabric. In her miracle of the cloak, she cleverly negotiates with the king for all the lands her cloak will cover so that she can build her new monastery. When he agrees, 
She stretches her cloak across the land in four directions to possess all of the Liffey Plain, the sacred druidic fields. We can understand her cloak of woven fabric as a symbol of sacred creational power. Statues of Aphrodite and Asherah also depict a spindle to represent the goddess's divine strength. St. Bridget's woven reed cross also represents her power in Ireland today. This dates to the Paleolithic, when people also built ritual items out of clay molded over woven reeds. Irish folk culture used weaving as a symbol for the creation of life until the modern era. The Irish Cultural Commission interviewed Irish people in the mid-1900s who said that St. Bridget imbued her fabric with her strength, and each strand of white thread she wove had healing powers. This belief extends to sacred sites for St. Bridget all over Ireland, where even today pilgrims cover a bush with small ribbons in hope of earning her healing blessing. This February, I plan to attend the St. Bridget's Day festivities in Ireland. I wonder if I should visit only Christian St. Bridget's sites, such as her holy wells. But I soon realized that Ireland's megalithic passage tombs were equally significant. Ireland's prehistoric monuments also reflect sacred feminine magnificence. Irish place names for these stone structures reflect a deeply ingrained consciousness of an earthly mother goddess. In County Meath, Ireland, three mounds known as the Witch's Hops were previously known as the Cali Steps. Caliac's name means witch or hag. The story of Caliac of Lofcrew contains remnants of an ancient creation myth, and Caliac was likely a goddess of the earth, venerated in ancient times. In Irish folklore, Caliac is a superhuman woman who could harvest a field faster than any man. True to Irish tradition, she also took many forms, including a crone, a banshee announcing death, or a Christian nun. Today a hag is a witch or an ugly old woman, an insulting name at best. Maybe we are just lucky that St. Bridget's Wells are calm and peaceful places for reflection and healing. Some still regard them as portals to the other world, a magical place from which feminine creators draw and vanquish life as they control the life cycle of birth, death, and regeneration. I find solace in the truth about female power and enjoy the fact that people have been telling this story for tens of thousands of years. St. Bridget lived a powerful life of superhuman dimension. She reminds all of us that the original female religious authority was appropriated under patriarchy and that in our work to break down patriarchy, we are restoring women to their rightful place in history. We're so thankful to Ariana for sharing her research with us today. As hurtful as it is to know how patriarchy has tried to suppress and hide the history of the sacred feminine worldwide, it brings me so much joy to see that, frankly, they've failed. There are still records of women's past and women's power, and Ariana's research on St. Bridget is such a great example of the sort of work that keeps the sacred feminine alive today. 
So with this context of Ireland's history of patriarchy and its patroness saint in mind, we're going to narrow our scope now and step into the story of an Irish woman today. Maureen Hernan is a food coach, a teacher, a restaurateur, and a writer. She loves the outdoors, good food, and exploring new places with her family. And we're so grateful that she's joining us today to share stories from her life and the role that patriarchy has played in it. Hi, my name is Maureen Hernan, and I want to share with you how patriarchy has influenced my life in a timeline fashion as I think this would give you a good glimpse of how the experiences I've had have coloured and shaped my life. Early childhood in the 70s. I was raised on a farm in rural Ireland with two brothers. My parents had traditional roles, as did our neighbours and our extended family. My father was a man that encouraged and expected my two brothers and I to chip in and get involved in many daily activities. Jobs were shared, for the most part, as equal as what was physically able. We all got to experience getting up at six in the morning to pull fresh veg for the market. We all got to experience staying up late into the early hours of the morning to supervise the birth of a new animal. And we certainly got pulled out on a Saturday morning to bring cattle in for testing or to collect eggs or to feed the animals, etc. The three of us were seen as equal, and he made it as much fun as possible along the way. But when it came to a lot of inside jobs, I think my mum swayed differently. I was the one asked to vacuum, and I was the one asked to set the table. The tea had to be ready for my dad at a certain time every day due to his work, and I was the one to be asked to do that, rather than the boys. When the priest came to visit many Saturday nights, the best china would be put on the table, and again I was asked to prepare it. I think for the most part it didn't really upset me or cross my mind even that it should be any other way. My elementary or primary school experience was such that the boys and the girls were in two separate schools after first grade. The girls' school which was run by nuns, ensured that we all did sewing and singing and dancing, art, outside the core curriculum. Whereas the boys were encouraged to partake in quizzes and sport and local history and geography. I think I would really have liked that as well. Uh, but my childhood education certainly was clearly gender-based. And the environment, again, at this time was a traditional family and the community focused one with traditional role models. Later childhood, through the 80s. My secondary or high school experience was a welcome change. It was a mixed school, and while there were limitations to the subject choice, we were encouraged to do whatever took our interest at whatever level. Both girls and boys were able to play football, run the school bank, take tech drawing. It was an open environment that allowed all students to equal opportunity. It was a time when there was a huge growth in kids going off to college. However, many boys had to stay at home to take over the farm. While farming was also going through a transition and becoming more streamlined and business run rather than lifestyle focused. It was still the son that would take on the job. Many girls choose nursing and teaching as these careers coupled better with family life. 
I remember my mum suggesting that I opt for a secretarial course or a local office job as it would be a lot easier. And why would I, to quote, kill myself, unquote, at college? Her intentions, I'm sure, were all good, but strongly coloured, I think, by her own experiences and perhaps her fear for me and the unknown ahead. Maybe she was hoping that I would meet the man that would take care of my financial needs. Young adulthood in the 90s. College for me was not your typical experience. I attended an affiliated college to Trinity College Dublin, run by Dominican nuns. This Roman Catholic order ran a strict archaic school where first-year live-in students had to carry out daily duties at 6.30 in the morning each morning before class, like polishing wooden staircases, and many traditions and duties and responsibilities were expected of subsequent years. One example comes to mind. Every Christmas there was a formal dinner where the freshmen did the wash-up the sophomores prepared and cooked, the juniors served, and the seniors got to sit and eat and mingle with the professors. My 21st birthday happened to fall on this night one year, and while I requested to be excused later into the evening with a few friends, this was not acceptable. I was told that this was a tradition that should not be broken. Guess what we did? So there was one singular boy, I think, in the complete four years that I attended, who was in class. We had the full spectrum of outlooks and philosophies, though, there, and some teachings uh, that were very traditional and some not so. One professor in particular, who had writings banned in a few universities, was inspirational, and he questioned everything. He lectured in theology, and while he had very deep and huge questions posed, he always made light of the lectures as well. I loved it, and it coloured my outlook on religion from then on. It aroused my curiosity and certainly caused a paradigm shift from my previous experiences. I remember when he questioned the gender of God in Catholicism and the possibility of the persona merely as something tangible to believe in and to pray to. Another lecture was questioning the existence of Mary, the mother of God. I do remember him asking that these debates and discussions remain within the lecture hall. Structure and the male dominance in religions were examined and discussed continuously. I don't think that too much of this was happening in Ireland at the time, but it was about to change. My first employer was a very patriarchal education institution in Ireland. I got a tour of the college I worked at on arrival and was shown the male and the female staff rooms, separate. I honestly thought that the vice principal was joking, but to my shock he was not. He agreed that it was archaic, but I'm afraid it took a few years before it changed. I was luckily in a separate department with a young, energetic staff. I remember having to fight at staff meetings for equal opportunity in funding, equipment, hours and space. Some of this was seniority and gender-based. More of it was preference for more trendy subjects and the market demand. 
we had a very authoritative principal who every new academic year would give an opening speech to staff with strong, threatening tones on work ethic and timekeeping. It seemed crazy to me, sort of funny really, but quite intimidating. During this time, I decided to purchase a house as an investment, having started work, and an uncle of mine kindly offered to give some advice. Again, to my surprise, he suggested that I consider a number of extremely small and old dwellings, like factory houses really, as they would be nice and easy for me rather than look at newer and bigger developments. Was he nervous for me or was he just exerting his authority on the matter? I'm not sure. Married life and parenthood through the 2000s. My husband and I found it relatively easy to make decisions regarding family, work and lifestyle together in our relationship. Our values align for the most part. I've stayed at home while our children have been raised and I, or we, felt strongly on the value of the family unit, our relationships and their growth in becoming confident individuals within the home firstly and then beyond. While there has been many difficult days for me personally to stay at home, I still came to the same conclusion in that it was the best option for me and us. It wasn't an expectation from anyone else, nor was it something that was looked upon as an opt-out either. I viewed it as a privilege, as many didn't have that option and had to work. My husband's work was far more financially beneficial and therefore provided opportunities for all of us. So I set aside my work and I took on the family role. I felt that in family life it is a constant give and take for things to work and tweaking the ever-changing demands. I balanced my life and the need for mental stimulation by setting up a consultancy business on health and nutrition while really, and it really felt great. At this time, I had many options but continued to choose being at home. The strong maternal urge to be there steered my course. Was this urge conditioning from my upbringing or was it nature itself? We immigrated to the US while our children were midway through schooling and once again I felt the need to be there for them and help them get established in a different society and culture. My youngest child, using the pronouns they them, also had it to overcome a lot of hardship in the past two to three years with anxiety and depression and gender identity. That I believe the safe haven of the home can only have been a solid base for them to work through it all. It has been an amazing growth experience for all the family and a bonding that goes beyond expectations. Interestingly, in a visit to Ireland this summer, we were amazed to have such an open and accepting experience for our trans child. It was uplifting to feel the support even in a place that still largely abides by traditional gender roles. Maybe we don't need to label so much in life. And maybe things have become too binary. I think that perhaps due to Ireland's struggles and hardship in the past, people looked out for each other. And this has penetrated through to today's Ireland. One's colour or religion or gender might not be such an issue 
our concern to others. There is a deeper appreciation, I think, of individual freedom. I also think that the Irish sense of humour, which pretty much is a survival mechanism, has helped build this understanding and acceptance of differences for sure. Here in the US, as I got to know many parents in the community, I found that many women choose to stay at home, be it an expectation or a choice, and many are in the workforce. Silicon Valley is a fast-paced, work-oriented place, and the pressure that many are under to meet all the expectations and survive here is challenging. Excellence in everything certainly has a price. I do believe that this complex dilemma is due to our cultural and religious and education and life experiences we've soaked up thus far. We are so busy driving every aspect to the next level that we don't allow breathing space to reassess. I mention this because I question if the roles today that many women have carry such high demands that it is destructive to the many parts of her being. Is it her own self or outside pressures that expect such exhausting standards on work, family, image, social participation, etc.? Who has created these standards? Are we trying to prove something? It is extremely difficult to prioritize the many roles women have today. Perhaps if the stay-at-home mom and the job entailed was to be a full-paid job, then maybe society would value this differently and there'd be a shift? I wonder. Also, I believe that we label far too much. If I choose to work and advance my career outside the home, or if I'm non-binary, or if I play a professional sport, I should have the right and be fairly treated to do so. I feel that society has become extremely secular also, and this together with the labeling has created many unnecessary boundaries for women. I remember my mother-in-law sharing a story that she had the privilege of being the first person to be told by a young neighbor that he was gay. This was a 70-year-old woman in the west of Ireland in the 1970s. Cried with joy and hugged him tight when she got the news. It is pretty spectacular and it was such a wonderful thing to think that she had such an open heart and he knew who to share his story with in a very small rural community. To her, he was who he always was, her neighbour. She was there for him and genuinely happy for him. Are we now trying to put people in boxes for our own peace of mind and simplicity rather than accepting differences and complexities? And are we doing so because we are, within ourselves, deeply unhappy? Or has patriarchy been the root cause of this? Has the tight hold of the patriarch, subtle or otherwise, pushed us into a constant fighting effort to find fairness, equality and freedom? Perhaps. To finish up, today I do feel fortunate. I acknowledge that many subtle yet influential experiences of patriarchy throughout my life that have both coloured and shaped my values and whole being. Family life and my role as a mother to nurture and care is high up on my value system. 
And I see it as a partnership with my husband, who plays a similar yet different role. I also value individualism, one's own interests and talents, and believe that everybody should follow this. Again, perhaps it has been the mix of encouragement and a few knocks that have helped me formulate who I am and the balance that I strive towards with the multitude of roles. I remain hopeful and optimistic for the future. Thank you. We're so thankful to Maureen and again, thankful to Ariana as well. This has been such a wonderful way to start the new month and celebrate women of Irish heritage in our community. For listeners who would like to learn more, you can visit us at our website, breakingdownpatriarchy.com for bonus materials and full transcriptions of each episode, as well as our Instagram at bedownpatriarchy. Before signing off, I'd also like to thank Sam Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olivest for our social media. And of course, I'd like to thank you listeners again. It's your encouragement and engagement that makes this project possible, and it's really been a thrill to hear from so many of you. If you aren't already, I'd encourage you all to hop on the comments on our Instagram or our episode pages to participate in the conversation. And also, if you have a minute, we never ask for any donations. We don't have ads on our podcast and we'll never ask you for any money. But many of you have asked what you could do to help the podcast. And one really simple and really helpful thing that you could do is to write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If this podcast has impacted your life in a positive way, or if you can think of a specific episode that meant a lot to you, just take a minute and write it on Apple Podcasts. would really appreciate it. And be sure to join us again next week for International Women's Day, when we'll be joined by an expert in women's leadership and one of my very favorite people, Vanessa Loader, who was the reading partner for the book The Beauty Myth on season one, and will return to the podcast to share life-changing insights on finding our own feminine power and unraveling our inner patriarchs. So be sure to join us for Vanessa Loader's episode next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Thank you.